Well, go ahead and turn in your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 1. Mark 1. We'll be looking at verses 14 to 20. Mark 1, verses 14 to 20. We're going to continue our journey through the Gospel of Mark this morning. And remember, it's, it is an extraordinary account of the life of Jesus, and it's fast-paced. Mark takes us by the hand and runs us through the life of Jesus. And we're going to run with him a little bit, uh, but I was surprised, and this is my own fault. Um, let me put this in a nutshell. Uh, we will not finish this sermon this morning. Uh, we only have so much time to do all that we need to do, and so I'm going to try to get through it. Uh, I'm going to try to run with Mark, uh, but we may not make it, and that's okay. There will be other Sundays, unless the Lord comes, and then we'll all be happy. <laughs> so Mark chapter 1, verses 14 to 20. I want to remind you of a couple of things about the Gospel of Mark. There are two themes that run through Mark, that are interwoven throughout the entirety of his gospel. The first is the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. And we have spent a lot of time thinking about that. It's all through Mark's gospel. And what we've seen so far in verses 1 to 13 is that Jesus is the unique Son of God. Mark makes this claim right out of the gate in verse 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Right? Mark makes that clear. We've seen that Jesus is uh, not only presented as the Son of God by Mark, but in his baptism, he's declared to be the Son of God. He's recognized as the Son of God by the Father. We've also seen that Jesus is the promised servant of Yahweh from the book of Isaiah. He's the one upon whom the Spirit of God descends and empowers for the work of ministry. Namely, the work of redeeming sinners uh, and bringing them into the kingdom of God. The servant of Yahweh was prophesied in the book of Isaiah, in, according to Isaiah 53, this Messiah servant would lay his life down as a substitutionary atonement for the people of God. He would come and live perfectly and bear the punishment for their sins. His life was lived for them and His death was died for them. He was, in this sense, the Lamb led to be slaughtered in the place of sinners. All right, that was the role of the suffering servant. That's His identity. But we've also seen that Jesus is the promised Messiah King. The seed, the son of David. And he's crowned, essentially, or he's announced as such, also in the baptism of Jesus. This is the beloved Son with whom I'm well pleased. He's identified as the promised Messiah King by John the Baptist, right? who ran before him and announced, this is the one, this is the King, this is the Messiah. And all of this really is demonstrated for us in the opening verses of Mark, and what we continue to see, and will continue to see rather, as we progress through Mark, is the glory of Jesus, the Son of God. Specifically demonstrated through His humanity. This is what we'll see in Mark. Mark wants to set the humanity of Jesus before us 
so that all of us will see and say, that is no ordinary man. This was a special man. This was the God-man. And by the end of his gospel, you, you can't help but say with the Roman centurion in, Rome, in Mark 15, as he looked upon Jesus, and as he saw him take his last breath, you can't help but say with him, truly, this was the Son of God. Now that's Mark's agenda. That's his agenda. He wants you to see this is who Jesus is. But there's another theme that runs through uh, the Gospel of Mark, and that is the theme of authentic discipleship. The identity of Jesus, but also what does it mean to follow Him? What does it mean to be a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus? And our text this morning, Mark 1, verses 14 to 20, interacts with both of these great themes. The identity of Jesus and true discipleship. And it does so by focusing in on the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's Mark's focus in verses 14 to 20. And from focusing on the ministry of Jesus, we can see three features or three aspects of his ministry. In verse 14, we see the context of Jesus' ministry. Verse 15, we see the content of his ministry. And then in verses 16 to 20, we see the men of Jesus' ministry. The men of Jesus' ministry. So the context, the content, and the men, or the people that make up Jesus' influential ministry. And as we work through this passage, you'll see that through Jesus' ministry, he has brought the kingdom of God near and calls ordinary people like you and me, to participate in His kingdom purposes. Now, again, we won't see all of that together because we won't cover all of this text. We probably won't make it to the last point, but we'll cover the first two points and we'll leave the rest for another day. So if you would stand with me and we'll read Mark 1, beginning in verse 14. Now, after John had been taken into custody... Jesus came into Galilee, preaching the gospel of God, and saying, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent, and believe in the gospel. And he was going along by the Sea of Galilee. He saw Simon and Andrew, the brother of Simon, casting a net in the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me. And I will make you become fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on a little further, he saw James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother, who were also in the boat mending the nets. Immediately he called them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired servants and went away to follow him. You may be seated. So first... Let's look at the context of Jesus' ministry. The context of Jesus' ministry. Mark says it very briefly in verse 14. After John had been taken into custody or arrested, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God. Now did you catch the context? Mark gives it to us in seven words. After John, that is John the Baptist, 
had been taken into custody. That's it. Literally, had been handed over or given over. Now, the last word we heard about John the Baptist was that he was preaching in verses 4 to 8 and proclaiming the kingdom of God's presence and calling people to repent. And you remember the results of John the Baptist's ministry. Uh, Mark says the whole country, in verse 5, of Judea was coming out to hear this man preach. They were hearing him, they were repenting, being baptized. And we saw that the way that Mark puts this, he quotes the Old Testament and points to Jesus as clearly to be the promised Messiah. And John the Baptist is the forerunner of the Messiah. He came just as kings in the ancient world would have a a forerunner to go before them and declare the coming of the king and make the way straight. John the Baptist came and announced the king, Jesus, and made his way straight so that he could come in and receive, uh, or began rather, his ministry. But the next thing we hear about John is that he's arrested. It, this extraordinary man of God, preaching the gospel, mightily used of God, servant of God, is taken into custody, handed over to the authorities. And Mark gives you no detail about it. He just goes from this glorious ministry of John the Baptist to now, after he was imprisoned. For Mark, all we need to know is that this great preacher, John the Baptist, and prophet as well, was treated just like every other preacher and prophet throughout history. Right? He was opposed and then deposed. He was taken into captivity. He was celebrated and then he was incarcerated. Right? This is the pattern that you see with God's prophets. And in one sense, John's ministry is simply foreshadowing what is going to happen with Jesus. Right? They preach the same message. They have similar results in their ministry. People follow them. But their ministry also, it ends in the same way. The world, as we saw last week from 2 Timothy, the world hates righteousness. The world hates righteousness. And here is this righteous man, John the Baptist, and he's taken into custody, eventually beheaded, And and in the same way, the world endures the righteousness of Jesus Christ for three years, and then they finally have enough of it, and they crucify it. And Jesus said, this is the way it goes. In John 15, 8, Jesus said, "This is if you follow me, the world will hate you. The world will hate you. They hate me, he says, without cause, but if they hate me, they will also hate you. John 15, 18 to 25. Now this is the context of Jesus' ministry. He comes on the scene in an environment that's opposed to him. Now we saw that in the temptation. Right? He, he's, he's tempted by the devil himself. And that, that was itself also a foreshadowing of what was to come. Jesus' entire ministry would be one in the context, not of warm welcome, but of opposition and hatred. And hostility. And those who are for Jesus will experience the same thing. And this is, you know, sort of a sub theme actually throughout the Gospel of Mark. The word handed over or taken into custody 
plays a, a unique role. We see it repeated throughout Mark's gospel, and it describes the fate of those who are faithful. It's almost as if Mark is reserving this word for that description. It's used of Jesus eight times in Mark chapter 14 and 15 to describe his arrest and crucifixion, handed over, betrayed. And in Mark 13, Jesus uses it to describe what will happen to his followers in the future. Now I want you to flip over there with me. Mark 13, verse 9, he says, Be on your guard. Speaking to his his disciples, be on your guard, for they will deliver you to the courts. It's the same word for taken into custody. They will deliver you over to the courts, and you will be flogged in the synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them. The gospel must be preached first to all the nations. And then verse 11, when they arrest you and hand you over, same word again, do not worry beforehand about what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but it is the Holy Spirit. Verse 12, brother will betray brother to death. That's the same word. Betray, hand over. And a father will hand over his child, and children will rise up against parents and have them put to death. And then notice verse 13, you will be hated by all because of my name. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. This is the context of Jesus' ministry. Opposition. Hatred. Hostility. It's the context of Jesus' mission and it's necessarily the context of any who desire to follow Him. Now that can be slightly discouraging. That's not the thing that attracts you to come to Jesus. Although he did say, come and take up your cross, uh, which was not a fancy necklace that you wear around your neck, but a torturing device. Uh, so he, he told us also to count the cost before we come to him. He's not hiding these things. But the context of his ministry, the context of our ministry, will be one of opposition. But here's the hope. Let me show it to you. There's another thing that we need to see about the context of Jesus' ministry, and this is where strong hope and for courage comes in. You remember that Mark is a big picture guy, and he's given us this fast-paced account. He's typically short, moves rapidly. Uh, he's the kind of preacher you wish that you had this morning. Uh, <laughs> he's the kind of preacher I wish I could be. He was also inspired to write a holy gospel that's inerrant and right. Um, but there's one thing we need to see about the context of Jesus' ministry here. And that is that Mark, in his haste, inspired haste, skips over an entire year of Jesus' ministry. Mark simply leaves out, jumps over Jesus' initial year in Judea. He doesn't include the wedding in Cana of Galilee. He doesn't include uh, where Jesus goes into the temple and drives out the money changers for the first time. He doesn't include that. He doesn't include any of uh, his initial ministry in Judea. He just jumps right over it and begins with his ministry 
in Galilee following the arrest of Jesus. Now, why is that significant? Well, what we need to understand is that during this year that Mark skips, Jesus had apparently been preaching and teaching alongside John the Baptist. Their ministries were happening side by side for a while. If you want to see this, flip over to John chapter 3. John chapter 3, and we'll see in verses 22 to 24. John gives us what Matthew and Mark and Luke don't give us. This is why we uh, trust, among other reasons, the Lord has given us all that we need. Uh, He's given us four Gospels that give us insights into the life of Jesus, and each Gospel shows us something from a a different perspective or fills in a gap. And and John does that for us in John 3, uh, verse 22. After these things, that is, the cleansing of the temple, Jesus' dialogue with Nicodemus, this is, these are the things that Mark doesn't mention, Jesus and his disciples came into the land of Judea. Now, there were a large number of people following Jesus who were called disciples. So when we read disciples, don't always think the twelve. Right? This is a large group of disciples who were following Jesus. But Jesus, it seems at this point, has not yet called the twelve. They're not called yet. And this, these twelve would eventually become uh, a unique group in, amongst the disciples. But here, they're probably not with Jesus. It's just these general disciples. And this large group of people, uh, they're following him. And Jesus is doing his ministry in Judea. And he was spending time with them and baptizing. John also was baptizing in Ainan near Salem. Because there was much water there. And people were coming and were being baptized. For John had not yet been thrown into prison. Interesting. So John is just giving us what Mark doesn't. And and, and so what we see is that there was a short time where the ministry of John the Baptist overlapped with the ministry of Jesus. Both were preaching in the Judean countryside. Both were preaching the same message, weren't they? Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. Both were baptizing people. Jesus was probably doing that through his disciples, not directly. But both were baptizing people. Both had amassed a large following. And both were causing the, the country itself to sort of shake. What in, in the world is going on in Judea? Two prominent men preaching, the greatest orators to have ever lived, uh, the Spirit of God empowering both of them to accomplish a remarkable work, and both doing it side by side. I mean, can you imagine it? It's, it's an amazing thing to think of. Uh, The most powerful men together, the godliest men together, men of character, men of conviction, men of renown at this point. And people were coming in droves to see them. And it seems like John the Baptist's ministry at this point was greater than Jesus's. But as we know, it wouldn't stay that way for long. Jesus's ministry would soon swallow up John the Baptist and actually... Some of John's disciples uh, are a little concerned about it. You know, it's, there's a little bit of competition, and we see that in Jesus' disciples, right? There's a little bit of competition. And, and if you look in uh, John 3, verse 26, 
uh, we see that it seems like John's disciples were concerned that Jesus' ministry was outpacing John's. And so they come to him and say, in verse 26, Rabbi, he who is with you beyond the Jordan, to whom you have testified, the one you said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, that one. Behold, he, he is baptizing, and all are coming to him. They're leaving our group, and they're all going to him. Notice how John responds. He doesn't malign Jesus. He's not jealous. He's not bitter. John answered and said, A man can receive nothing unless it has been given him from heaven. You yourselves are my witnesses that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent ahead of him. He who has the bridegroom, he who has the bride is the bridegroom. But the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. Now, you don't go to someone else's wedding and think it's all about you. And notice John the Baptist says, So this joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, but I must decrease. This joy of mine has been made full. He must increase, and I must decrease. My joy is tied up in His exaltation and my shrinking. He must increase, I must decrease. John understands his function in God's larger agenda. Preach the Word, exalt Christ, and decrease until finally you're so small that you just disappear and no one remembers you. His ministry was to run ahead of the Messiah and proclaim His coming. And then simply get out of the way. It's really similar to what we're called to do. But that was John's agenda. That was God's agenda for John, rather. And John did not kick against it. He embraced it and welcomed it and and gladly decreased. But the question is, how is such a powerful man like John how is he going to just leave the, the theater of God's redemptive story? How is he just going to exit the scene? You've got these two groups. What is God going to do? How is God going to make the transition? Well, we know that God has a plan, right? And we know that it's perfect, right? And we know that it's good. And we know that it's wise. Right? It's the same reality that we experience today. God's plan is is good, it's perfect, it's wise. Well, what was God's plan for John? Well, in God's wisdom, he had ordained an exit strategy for John the Baptist. It's not an exit strategy that you would sign up to undergo, but it's God's agenda nonetheless. The exit strategy to get John off the scene was for him to be arrested by Herod, imprisoned, and finally beheaded. That was God's exit strategy for John. John was arrested because he stood up courageously against the most powerful man in Palestine, Herod Antipas, who had seduced and taken in his brother's wife Herodias, And John, on multiple occasions, goes to Herod 
this powerful man who, who you know, holds, in one sense, on a horizontal level, holds John the Baptist's life in his hands, and John doesn't cower. John stands and calls him to repent. <laughs> he was a courageous man. And eventually, after he had rebuked him enough, and Herod didn't respond positively, Herodias got upset about it, and then she worked out a situation where she was able to uh, ask for John the Baptist's head on a silver platter. And she got what she asked for. That's Mark 6, and Lord willing, we'll get there someday. But on the horizontal level, this leaves us shocked, right? I mean, how could a man like John the Baptist undergo this kind of uh, response? And it would have shocked his disciples. How, what's going on? How is, this, how, how is this happening? God was using him mightily. It seems like God has somehow dropped the ball, but no, he hasn't. God has a plan, and he's working it out perfectly. John the Baptist understood that he was simply a servant to the Lord. A master does with his servant whatever he pleases. Amen? The master does what he wants. The servant doesn't get to ask for a different scenario. The general of the army is the one who says, you go here, you do this. The, the private, the, the, the soldier, isn't in charge of his placement in the fight. The general is. And when the general says, your time is up, your time is up. And John embraced that. God had a clear work for John to do, and when his time was up, it was up. And God used the sin of Herodias and Herod to transition John the Baptist into glory. What they meant for evil, God meant for good. And, and friends, there is such a powerful reminder there, which is why I'm taking a lot of time thinking about this. Because we're in a context where evil and corruption seems to have increased and advanced in our society. We see it right now in Ukraine. Right? And we're praying and we're seeing the atrocities that are happening, not just in Ukraine, but Myanmar and all across the world. And we see these things and we yearn and we cry out for God to intervene. And we even experience hostilities ourselves when we stand and rebuke or call people to repentance. We experience often, maybe not what John the Baptist received, but we experienced uh, a different version of that. What, what keeps us going when we're in a context of opposition? What's going to keep you going in college, right? When you're there and you're on, you plant your feet on that exciting campus for the first time and you take an intro to philosophy course and you're introduced to things you've never thought about before. What's going to keep you going when you stand and, and oppose the, the mass of people that are following all in the same uh, philosophy? What's going to keep you going? Well, it has to be that you understand that when you follow Jesus, you will be treated as Jesus is treated. And that is right. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul, Jesus says, how much more will they malign those of his household? So we're not left just to think, okay, well, God will work this out some way. No, we, we are told that God is working 
meticulously, even through opposition, to accomplish His good purposes. And He turns those blows from our enemies into good. Reminds me of the Scottish uh, missionary, John Patton. John G. Patton was missionary to a string of islands off the coast of Australia. And he had been on an island called Tana for around four years and experienced increasing opposition from the nationals. And, and eventually he, he realized he's, he just had to escape. And, and as he was escaping, he was surrounded by a group of raging, yelling, screaming nationals with spears and guns in their hands. And they were each yelling at one another to, to be the one to strike the first blow. And in his autobiography, Patton writes, My heart rose up to the Lord Jesus. I saw Him watching all the scene. My peace came back to me like a wave from God. I realized that I was immortal till my Master's work with me was done. And the assurance came to me as if a voice out of heaven had spoken, that not a musket would be fired to wound us, not a club prevail to strike us, not a spear leave the hand in which it was held vibrating to be thrown, not an arrow leave the bow or a killing stone the fingers without the permission of the Lord Jesus Christ, whose is all power in heaven and on earth. He rules all nature, animate and inanimate, and restrains even the savage of the South Seas. I realized that I was immortal till my master's work with me was done. That's John the Baptist. His master had a task for him to do, and he was immortal. Uh, Herod couldn't lay a finger on him until God was through with that servant. He discharged his duty and he exited exactly as the Master had planned. And friends, this is true of all who follow Jesus. If you have trusted Him, Ephesians 2 says that you are created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. God has called you and has ordained good works for you to walk in. Things for you to do. And you are immortal until you have completed those good works. Do you know that? Do you believe that? That's true. Not a stone can touch you. Not a, 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 an arrow pierce your heart until your time on earth is done. I mean, talk about strength and courage. Well, there's much more we could say about that. We could meditate on the fact that God will keep us through and through until our work is done, but we have to move on. So what we've seen then is the context of Jesus' ministry. It's one of strong opposition, but all of the opposition itself is even being orchestrated by a sovereign, good, loving God. He is doing, and always is doing, 
according to His divine plan. That's the context of His ministry. And we, we move now to the content of His ministry. We've seen the context, now the content of His ministry. Namely, the message of the Messiah. What, what did He do? What did He preach? What was the content of His ministry? Look at verse 14. Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. The ministry of Jesus was a preaching ministry. It was a ministry of, of proclamation. Uh, in fact, in Mark chapter 1, if you flip back, flip back over to Mark chapter 1, in verse 38, Jesus says that to His disciples, let us go to the towns nearby also, so that I may preach there, for that is why I came out. That is why I came out, to preach, to proclaim, to herald a truth from heaven. And the summary of that truth is called the gospel of God. The gospel of God. Gospel means good news. And the gospel is the good news about what God is doing through the person and work of His Son, Jesus the Messiah. Mark actually titles his, his gospel, Mark 1.1, 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel about Jesus Christ. The gospel centers on Christ. And Jesus came as a herald to proclaim what that work was. What was it that Jesus was going to do that would be good news? Well, Mark tells us in verse 15. This is the substance of the good news. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent. And believe in the gospel. Now, if that doesn't sound like good news to you, then that tells me that you don't understand what the kingdom of God is. And we'll spend some time thinking about that in the next few minutes. There are two features about Jesus' preaching ministry uh, that every Christian, that we especially this morning, want to think about. The first is what we might call a glorious indicative a glorious indicative, a glorious truth, a glorious fact, a glorious reality. And what is that reality? The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. The time is fulfilled, he says. That's a statement that connects Jesus' pronouncement of the kingdom of God directly to the Old Testament. We don't need to jettison the Old Testament to try to figure out what the kingdom of God is. We don't need to reinterpret the Old Testament to try to figure out what the kingdom of God is. No, Jesus correct, connects it directly by saying the time is fulfilled. This statement connects the kingdom of God with all the glorious promises of the Messianic kingdom in the Old Testament. And we see it throughout the Old Testament. The time is fulfilled. Not in the sense that all the details have now in this moment come to fulfillment. But in the sense that everything is now 
in line. Everything's in order. Everything is in its proper place for the kingdom of God to come. At least the initial phase. It's the same idea that we see in Galatians 4.4. He says, When the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son. The fullness of time. The idea there is when everything was right, when all the religious, cultural, and political conditions were just right. Now, how did they get there? By chance, of course. No. God was sovereignly orchestrating every event, every election, well, every appointment of governors or prefects or all these different important positions. God was over them all. Appointing kings, uh, dethroning kings, appointing governors. He was at work. And when the fullness of time had come, meaning... God's agenda, God's, God's work in history was uh, all set in, in an order for the next phase to happen. God sent forth His Son. And this is what we see in Mark 1.15. The time is fulfilled means this. That this is the point in which God has been moving all of history for this moment. For, Jesus to, for John the Baptist to be beheaded. For Jesus to stand in Galilee and say, the kingdom of God is at hand. It was all orchestrated perfectly by God. Now, this is the million dollar question. What is the kingdom of God? What is the kingdom of God? Well, you can search and find a myriad of definitions of what the kingdom of God is, but we're not concerned with all of those, right? We're concerned with what has God said. What does God say? Well, when Jesus announced the kingdom of God, everyone in His presence knew what He meant by the kingdom. Everyone knew what He meant by the kingdom. Jesus doesn't qualify his statement. He doesn't correct them. He just announces it. The kingdom is at hand. They knew what he was talking about because they knew their Old Testament. And they were all longing for exactly the same thing. They wanted the Messiah to come. Set up his kingdom on earth and eradicate all hostility bring in peace, eternal peace, where people would turn their swords into plowshares, where God would bless the nations through the Messiah. Everyone was longing for that. And so when Jesus said the kingdom is at hand, this is what they were thinking. At the time of Jesus' arrival, the entire Jewish world was pulsing with messianic anticipation. When will the king come? They knew that God had promised to redeem them, to rescue them, not just spiritually. It wasn't just spiritually. They were looking for a Messiah to come and do something to them internally, but also to establish His physical kingdom. Let me just read for you Isaiah 9. 
The people, this is the prophecy about the coming Messiah, the people who walk in darkness will see a great light. Those who live in a dark land, the light will shine on them. You shall multiply the nation. You shall increase their gladness. They will be glad in your presence, as with the gladness of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. You get spoil when you defeat people. You're glad, not when you lose, but when you win. The Messiah would bring sure and certain victory. For you shall break the yoke of their burden. These people were under a burden. They were longing to be removed from it. The staff on their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor, as at the battle of Midian. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us. And the government will rest on his shoulders. Not a spiritual government. The government will rest upon his shoulders. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. This is the one they were hoping for. There will be no end to the increase of his government. Physical government over people. Or of peace. On the throne of David physical throne. David was promised a descendant on his throne for eternity, forever. He would be on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and evermore. The zeal of Yahweh will accomplish this. This is what the Old Testament saints were looking forward to. This is what the, the, the Jews in Jesus' time were looking forward to. There was a promise that the Messiah would come and establish a kingdom, expel darkness, increase the nation, neutralize opposition, make the people glad, relieve their burden, and all of a sudden Jesus is on the scene and He says, the time is here. It has arrived. I'm here to increase joy. I'm here to establish a kingdom. I'm here to bring people in. This is what I'm here to do. I'm here to overthrow oppressors. And of my government and of peace, there will be no end. When he says it, all the people come. They want to be part. They want to know this Messiah, and they want to be a part of this king, kingdom's rule. They want to be a part of this kingdom, because the kingdom they're currently in is pretty lousy. Right? They're, they're needing... Someone to come and break the rod of their oppressor. So Jesus doesn't have to go around and cultivate interest in the kingdom. He doesn't do that. He doesn't nuance his statement. He doesn't qualify it. He, he assumes that they know exactly what he's talking about. They were looking for a personal Messiah who would come, restore the literal throne of David, and personally reign from David's throne. That is the kingdom that Jesus is speaking of. Now I understand there is some... There are different views about that. And I would encourage you to think about those. But when you read the Old Testament, and Jesus steps onto the scene at the close of the Old Testament, and He proclaims the kingdom of God is at hand, He means exactly what all the early church thought. He means exactly what these Jewish people thought. The king is here. The kingdom is coming. But we know the Jews missed it, right? We know they missed it. Now, how do they miss it? 
Well, they didn't miss it because they misunderstood that Jesus was going to conquer political enemies. They didn't miss it because of that. Isaiah 9 says clearly that he's going to do that. Read the Old Testament. It says clearly that he's going to establish peace, physical peace. They didn't miss it because Jesus didn't go and sit on the throne and overthrow um, the emperor. That's not why they missed it. They missed it because they failed to understand that the pathway for the Messiah was the path of the suffering servant mentioned in Isaiah 53. It has nothing to do with spiritual or physical kingdom. No, it has everything to do with they didn't believe, they couldn't accept that the Messiah had to suffer. We see the disciples themselves recoil at the idea. Peter is rebuked. Jesus is most stern with Peter when he mentions, when he opposes the fact that the Messiah has to suffer. Why? Because they hated the idea of it. They hated it. They missed the fact that Isaiah 53 clearly announces that the Messiah, the suffering servant, the servant himself would suffer vicariously in the place of sinners. And that would be the mechanism, the means, the way that sinners like you and I are brought into the kingdom spiritually and physically. They missed it. For them, it was all glory and no cross. They wanted the crown, but they didn't want it to have thorns in it. That's what they wanted. And, and we understand this, right? We just read from 1 Corinthians 1, 18-19, or longer than that, but we just read that. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. To the Jews, the cross is what? A stumbling block. It's folly. It's ridiculous to them. The Messiah would never do that. But to us, Oh, the cross is everything. Because why we hang it places to remind us of, of the cross. Because without that, we have no hope. Without that, we have no hope of ever being reconciled to God, of ever entering into His spiritual kingdom now and His physical kingdom in the present. And when He says, the kingdom is at hand, and I have to talk fast. You guys listen quick. When He says, the kingdom is at hand or near, What does he mean? Well, I I think, in one sense, this is a simple question. A simple answer. Jesus is the King, the promised Messiah, and because He's there with them, His kingship and His dominion and His kingdom are right there. They're near. They're at hand. There's another sense, though, that the kingdom is at hand or near, and that's the sense of imminence. Meaning, meaning that it's right at the door. It's right here in your presence. In fact, Jesus' earthly ministry, just it sort of inaugurated this kingdom that was coming. And it was right there in their midst. It was moving towards fulfillment. Everything was moving in that direction. But Jesus doesn't say that it has been consummated or it's fully says it's at hand, it's near, it's present. And so we get this sense that the kingdom is already inaugurated, but it's not yet fully consummated. You've heard the language already, not yet. That comes, uh, it's helpful to think of the kingdom as an already, not yet reality, because Jesus thinks of it that way. Jesus says already, it's right here. 
The kingdom is near. It's at hand. And he announces to the Pharisees in Luke 17, 20, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there it is. For behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. When you've arrived at your destination, a sign is no longer helpful. Right? You don't need directions for how to get there when it's in your midst. And Jesus looked at the Pharisees and said, the kingdom of God is right in front of you. And you're missing it. You're missing it. It's already here. But in another sense, in Matthew 6, Jesus teaches us to pray, your kingdom come. Right? There is a sense in which we enjoy the benefits of, of, of Jesus' kingship now. Right? We could, if we had time, we could look at the, the way that Jesus inaugurates the covenant and fulfills the new covenant promises. And you and I are, are enjoying the benefits of having a new heart. Did you know that's a, an Old Testament promise? It's Jeremiah 11 and Jeremiah 31. The new covenant will be given new hearts. And we, we experience that now as Gentiles. We have been purified. We've been washed. God has removed the heart of stone from our chest and given us hearts of flesh. That's Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. There's a sense, a real sense, in which we are enjoying the new covenant blessings right now. Right? We are heirs to a kingdom right now. And that kingdom is not yet here in its fullness, but it's, it might as well be. Because we are as happy and as confident and courageous and hopeful as if it were already a reality. Why? Because we trust in the Lord. We've been given the Holy Spirit. And we could go on and on, but I do have to skip some things. Um, now here's the question. How does one get into this kingdom? Right? It's a glorious kingdom. It's a kingdom that you want to be in. It's a kingdom that has benefits now in the present. Some of those are the forgiveness of your debt. Not physical debt. You can go talk to someone else for that. I don't know how to help you with that. But it's spiritual debt. You, you can be forgiven of all your sins, past, present, and future. Does that sound appealing to you? Um, you can have friendship with God. You can have relationship with God. You can be reconciled to Him for eternity. And you can dwell with Him and reign with Him in the kingdom forever. But how do you do it? Well, look at verse 15. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's how you get in. Repent and believe in the gospel. There's only one way to enter. And because the entrance into the kingdom is via or through faith and repentance, you better know what those two words mean, and you better think about, have you done those things? Right? Have you repented? And I'll briefly, I have more notes here I can give you if you're interested afterwards. Repentance. This word is a change of mind that leads to a change of action. You've got to change your mind, right? You've got to bow the knee to Christ. Stop living for self and serving self and come to Jesus. Bow to Him. It's, it's you're walking in one direction and you once thought, well, this is a pretty nice walk. This is a pretty good direction I'm on. And then all of a sudden you realize, because God works in your heart, you realize this is not right. This is not the way I want to live. And repentance is you turning from that 
and turning to Christ and trusting Him and faith. Faith is, in a word, simply refusing to call God a liar. It's believing Him. When Jesus says, I am the King, the Messiah is here, and all the benefits that are given to those who follow the Messiah can become yours by faith, you trust Him. And you say, I believe that. I believe it. I, I trust you. It's, 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 a, it's exactly like Abram in Genesis 12. God comes to him, gives him all of these promises. And, and Abram, how does Abram demonstrate that he actually believes God? By staying in Ur and meditating and musing on all these wonderful promises that God's going to do for him? No, right? Verse 4 says, And Abram went as the Lord had spoken. You demonstrate faith. Faith works, right? You demonstrate your faith by your response to the truth. Right? If you believe the truth, it will affect how you live. It will make you fearless and courageous in a world of opposition. Right? If you believe that Jesus is who He says He is, you won't be deterred by the context of ministry. That will be opposition. Why? Because heaven will make amends for all. That's why. Because you know that to take up a cross now is to lead to glory with Christ later. You can have your heaven now, or you can have heaven later. If you choose heaven now, you will have hell for eternity. But if you choose difficulty at following Christ now, heaven is yours. And all the benefits attached to following our Lord. So I would say, choose Christ. Trust Him. And if you have, follow Him. Follow Him even though it's hard because heaven will make amends for all. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You for Your kindness to us. And above all, we thank You for our Lord Jesus. Thank You that through Him we have hope that is everlasting and will never fail. Thank You that we are participants now in a kingdom that will have no end. We thank You that one day Jesus, our Lord, will sit on the Davidic throne and all the nations will worship Him and He will teach all men. Lord, we thank You for clarity and insight and conviction to follow You. We thank You for the faith You've given us. Thank You for working in our hearts to change us. Thank You for all of Your goodness to us. Help us, Lord, to follow you more earnestly and bring you maximum glory in our lives. Lord, we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen.